for so many terrific Australian films. So another big round of applause and warm welcome to Christiane June from the Cannes Film Festival. Rolf has offered, and I insist on the word of offering, one of the greatest films we ever shown in Cannes, to my opinion. And for that, uh, we'll always be thankful. And uh, I'm sure more are going to come. Bad Boy Bobby was not shown in Cannes, but who cares? Bad Boy Buddy was very hard. Like all of you, I guess, we discovered his work. It's a, when we talk about the film, it's full of cliches. It's unique, it's a cult film. It's just for me what a good work of art is, whatever the, the field. It could be painting, music, cinema. It's a very disturbing film, but disturbing in a very good way, not like in a free provocative way. Disturbing because when we watch the film, we see ourselves in a way that it's tricky to see ourselves. And uh, on top of that, uh, uh, this film is very special because for me, when you have forgotten everything, what remains is always a good indication of uh, what a piece of work is, a work of art, I mean. And Bite Boy Buddy is sticking to, the, to my skin. It's a film you cannot get rid of because it's, uh, it's really like in your mind, in your eyes, but also, more importantly, on your skin. And very few films are so carnal and so concrete. So I'm very happy to, to call Rolf and to, to be here with you today. I'm a little sort of semi-incoherent. I've just landed from, from Paris um, this morning, uh, where I was to, of all things, promote Bad Boy Bubby. It's, it's uh, being re-released in the cinemas of France. It's opening November 11 in, on 30 screens. I think, go figure, <laughs> I can't understand this. <laughs> I, I never expected, of course, 20 years later to still be you know, dealing with this, this film. And, and people tell me that I've, I've made a cult film. And I said, no, 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 I just made a film. You, you have made it the cult film. Uh, and that's what an audience does. An audience makes it a cult film. And so when I receive emails from New Zealand with photographs of, of people with very complex tattoos of mom with a gas mask and bubby, whatever, and it's completely astounding to me um, that this film works in the way that it does. Um, this particular screening is the first of its type ever, anywhere, that I know of, um, where the original complex but simple binaural recording gets to be heard and the, the film seen on the big screen. Um, it's a complex technical exercise. If it goes completely wrong, we have somebody at the back there who will step in. He knows every word that is spoken in the film and he'll stand up here and recite them. Uh, that's in case there's a problem. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to watch the film because I've, I don't think I'll ever get another opportunity to see it like this. 
Um, and I've seen it many times, not so much recently, but I, I'm going to take the opportunity today to do so. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Mike, for making it possible. Thank you, Christian, for years and years and years. And thank you, Sandra, for the film festival. Thank you. recently graduated from film school that nobody was going to give me a pile of money to go and make a film. And so what I'd worked out to do was that I would get a job and um, I would earn enough to buy a roll of film and then we'd shoot from one weekend maybe with this one roll of film and then I'd work and earn enough to have it processed and then that process would continue. And I figured it would take about three years to shoot a film that way, um, which then left me the problem with knowing that there would be not the same crew all the time, and in particular, not the same director of photography, because you can't expect to be shooting on and off over three years and have the same um, person available whenever you feel like it. So this was a real problem for me. And I solved it by locking the character, which I didn't yet have a real character, but I solved it by locking the character up. So I locked the character up, took away all reference to the outside world, no books, no television, no radio, no pictures, nothing. And, and then when he gets out, he would see everything for, for the very first time, and it could look like anything. Um, now, in the event, 10, 11, 12 years later, when we did make the film, it was not my first film, but it was the fourth film, and we got a bit of a proper budget. It was low budget, but it was a proper budget. And we had a conventional shoot, in as far as you can have a conventional shoot with a film like this. Um, but I thought, well, the whole thing is structured that way from the beginning, so let's just do it. Um, and so we, were, we had the great fun of casting cinematographers from all over the place who all came and did their bit. One day, I think we had five on the one day, a different cinematographer for every location between when Bubby gets out and when he comes back in and says he doesn't fit there anymore. Uh, James, could you please tell us about the binaural process? Oh, okay. <laughs> when you work with Rolf, there's always the question of what, what are we going to do next? And I didn't think this idea up. One day he said, oh, I've got this idea, mate. Uh, we're going to put the microphones on the actor's head. I thought, oh, that's interesting. That, that should be very good. How are we going to do that? Oh, we're going to make a wig and put him in the wig and then put it on his head. But first of all, I'm going to trial it. So it's not real binaural. Let's get that straight for the purists. It's quasi-binaural. It's a modified version because it's cinema, okay? And so we 
developed it slowly. We had to have battery power. We had no money. So we, we then had to look at all sorts of different propositions to make it effective on location. And there are some tricky locations around Port Adelaide, uh, the wharves, in houses, uh, and in the studio. Did that answer the question? So I'm not responsible for it. It wasn't my idea. Okay. It was his. Um, that belies James's contribution to it. Um, it. It came about because years before, um, I did my first proper big Dolby stereo mix. And I was very excited by this, this concept of Dolby stereo. And, and we had lots of time and to, to pre-mix and to mix. And I learned a lot from James uh, during that mix, uh, not the least of which was that almost every sound in a Dolby Stereo sound mix is mono. Now, I objected to this. I thought this was a terrible thing. Uh, and James and I began a conversation that went on for years um, because I had my office at... at uh, I ended up moving to South Australia. Uh, I did another big mix there. Uh, I had my offices, first of all, in, in a property that, uh, in, in a set building workshop that James was running, uh, and then at the corporation. And, and we would talk about stereo and what is true stereo and how to use it. And this notion of the binaural sound developed over a period of years. And the first idea was to put a styrofoam head with the microphones where the ears are on the camera. And shoot from that perspective. And, and, and James already, you know, had, had bitten this large odd thing off and swallowed it and consumed it and thought, yeah, okay. And then I came to him and said, no, 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 we can do better than that. We can put it on this head. And we went, gulp, okay. And we did. Yes. How did such a film get made? Uh, full stop. It, it's uh, uh, very experimental, but very provocative. How did th this become greenlit? Um, the film is the way it is because of its tremendously long history uh, where, you know, once, once I had made a film and it was not going to be my first film anymore and I just kept playing with the ideas because it, it sort of became the film I was never going to make. And this gave me quite some freedom in, in um, how I dealt with, with sc screenplay. Then, you know, after the second film, it, it became the script I was never going to write. But because I was interested in the ideas um, and, and playing with it, I would play with it occasionally. You know, move house, whatever, doesn't goes away for six months. And those two things were, were just completely liberating. Then suddenly I needed to write the script um, because I needed some some money, I was had run out of money, and I could, you know, I needed to apply for script development money with something, and it was the thing that was closest. And I still wasn't going to make it, just write the script. And then I'd written the script and read it, and I thought, my God, this speaks very loudly. And I liked it enormously. And I thought, well, let's try and fund it. And as luck would have it, uh, it came into the possession of an Italian producer who was looking to extend from just making Italian films 
And, and he read it and heard what the budget was and said, this cannot be. Uh, and he came out to Australia for a couple of days to, sort, to, to see what was really going on. And we got on terribly well. And he said, OK, I'll put up half the money. And once you're in that situation, you can raise the other half relatively easily. Um, but in, you know, the, the, the funding body at the time in South Australia, which was um, Screen South or whatever it was called, Southern, somebody will know what they were. Um, it was not, not South Australian Film Corporation, but it was the, the original funder of, of, of stuff. They had funded the, the screenplay, but, but when it came to investment, they, just, they had a board meeting that they fought a lot. Some people thought they should put the money in, some people thought they shouldn't, and in there they didn't. Um, uh, and I can understand that. But um, the predecessor of Film Finance Corporation, just bang, here, have it. it. It's to do with a script that speaks so loudly, in a sense, and so well. Yeah. And the budget's, the budget's quite low, and they think, okay, let's find out. Yeah, it's a, it's a miracle. Um, there's a lot of local people here and film lovers. Um, can I, does anyone have a question? Please raise your hand. At the beginning of the movie, it's a really dark um, and depressing sort of environment that Bubby and the family's in. Did that have any sort of effect on the actors and the movie makers when you were in that environment for a period of time? <laughs> um, yes, it did. Um, it, it made the journey for the crew almost a little bit like Bubby's journey because what happened was we were ensconced in this dark studio uh, which on, on a set that gradually degraded and then when, when he destroys it and there's water everywhere and feathers and things, the feathers started to rot and it, the whole place started to stink. But it was our home. And when we had to go outside for the first time, it was, it, I think, you know, like, like even sound department is usually easy with this, but this was very difficult for everybody to, to leave the, the comfort of our little cave and, and go and shoot out. It's a, and did, did you know that we played that, that sound effect in stereo into the set? So the, the whole crew and all the actors were already in the environment. I mean, everything to hear in there is live. Or the band is live. So that when uh, Rolf... Did, look, Rolf came up and said, I want this sort of sound. And I said, oh, OK. So he said, oh, I've got a good idea. I'll go and find it. So he grabbed the tape recorder. Off he went. He went somewhere, I'm not sure where... Where was uh, that? Port Adelaide Wool Stores. There you go. Put it and came back and said, I've got it. All you've got to do is muck around with this, make an early morning one, a midday one, an afternoon one, a night one, and so that the, everybody was in that environment, not only in the set, but also the acoustics of that environment all the time. You see, when, when, uh, unknowingly, unknowingly, because we're so young and not, not, not that... We didn't know much in those days. We, we, were, we were doing what I verbalise now as taking the audience, you guys, on a voyage, on a, different, on a different pathway, okay? So 
the jump-off point came, all right, Rolf said, okay, we're going to shoot an outside scene down the road here. So then we had to big, big, huge banks of speakers to play the same atmosphere, the same sounds in the street. We had to overcome whatever Port Adelaide was generating with these martial amps. You know, it was like a rock and roll show just coming to the street. Uh, any more questions, film students? Uh, there's one right at the, over there. Gotcha. What were we able to hear today through the headphones that we wouldn't have heard if we had have just watched it at the cinema normally? What did we hear today on the headphones that we wouldn't have heard if we Oh, yeah, yeah. Look. Should we talk about that? There, there were, originally, we did a mix that was so wild, so far out. However... Some of our uh, uh, um, producers said, nobody will go and see it with that. So you've got to turn it down. Got to... So there are parts of it that it's all heard from bad boy's perspective because of the microphones in his wig. Okay, to t so that when you hear him eating or swallowing or doing whatever, it's all those sorts of things that you hear, that you feel. Okay? Um, it, it sounds that are not necessarily part of a movie soundtrack, especially in American hybrid, sanitised, everything's taken out, right, taken away, everything's done after the event. We were doing everything on the, on the moment. Port Adelaide, Port Adelaide was giving us gifts every time we came here because we would did the immediately, like the music in the back of the truck is live. The music in the hotel up the road is all live. Everything is immediate, so we hoped that that would... Because uh, Rolf's big question that he revealed to me a few months ago, and I thought it was very good, he says, is this cinema? And the answer is, to me is, yeah. We were doing that not knowing the question. And, 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 and also, a, li a little more specifically, I guess, um, the effect of headphones is to, I think, just en engage us a little more deeply um, because the spatial placement of everything is, in a sense, completely natural, yeah. okay? And, and, and that's, that's the big difference, I think, is how natural and how subtle all the spatial placement is. Like, when, when he... When, uh, just before he finds the little cat and he's, he's found a blue suitcase and he puts his thing in the blue suitcase and he picks it up and he puts it on the other side of himself. Now, it's completely natural here on, on, with the headphones and, and quite subtle where the, you know, it, it happens, but, but completely naturally. In a large cinema, you're more aware that it gets moved from here to there, and it does, and it's, and, and it's very organic to the film because that's how it was. But I found this, to, this screening to be intensely engaging because you're never 
out of the film because of the sound in the same way that you sometimes are when it's in the cinema? Uh, any more questions? Uh, Nicholas. I'm a big fan of the idea that various cities and countries and what have you all have very specific kinds of, of, of cinema, of atmospheres, of moods, whatever. And um, most Adelaide films that I've seen, like, or, or air, films set around the area, like Snowtown, have this very sort of perverse vibe that I think that I also get from Bad Boy Bubby. When you were writing it, did you ever consciously think of Adelaide uh, as, a, as a setting, or was it just a result of... The, the way I write is on, on, on cards uh, with, with pencil and, and rubber. And um, I was collecting ideas for this, and I'd write, write the card. And, and, and the cards still exist, and you can see the, the earliest ones I collect that are quite yellow compared to the later ones are still white. And so over a very long period of time. The conception of the film was years before I had even been to Adelaide, okay? There's, there's locations that the, the were in my head that, that don't exist anymore in Sydney. Uh, are like like when, he's, when he's running across the open space because he hears the Salvation Army, that was going to be this desolate sort of railway yards that existed quite close to where I lived. Well, those desolate railway yards are gone and in there is, is this huge multi, multi-billion dollar tourist development, Darling Harbour, okay? That was, you know, um, and the, the majority of the scenes, I guess, were conceived before um, I moved to Adelaide. Then when it came to, you know, shooting it, it was logical to do it here, um, I had to find locations, and they were all different to some of the ones that were in my head. And so, for example, the, the, um, the scene in Torrens Power Station, okay, that goes up where the scientist speaks about, I think, God out of existence. Now, he was more clearly a scientist, in a sense, in the script, and there was a location that I knew of in Linfield, which was a CSIRO sort of huge laboratory thing, and that's where that was meant to be. But it's fine, it works differently and, and, and works well. So um, it, be, it, it was a question of using what we had, and we had tremendous luck and... and, and uh, oh, the, the St. Peter's Cathedral, you know? Um, look, we, we, we surveyed, we spoke to them about the film and told them what it was like, and they said, it's okay. The day we turned up, of course, it, they, were, they were renovating, and it was a disaster, you know? It was like, this is not the way it's meant to be. It's half of it's covered in plastic, and the, half the floor is gone. And Now, in the end, it was like, no, oh, but hey, this could be good. And so we shot there in that way, and it was great. Um, and, you know, there are practically there have been theses have been written about what it means in terms of Christianity and the destruction of Christianity and blah, you know, all that. That's fine. Um, and just while we're there at St. Peter's Cathedral, the, there, was, there were curious organic things about the film that are hard to explain. And one of them was 
the use of Handel's Largo, which is you know, the, the, the main thematic piece of music that's used three times in the film. Um, originally, the whole film was written with all my favourite bits of music in it. I thought, I can do this with this. I can, I can use whatever piece of music I like and, and it'll work, it'll be fine. So, uh, there was Vivaldi and there was rock stuff and all this sort of business, all my favourite stuff. And when I spoke to the composer, because you know you think, yeah, well then we'll need some some you know incidental music, he convinced me not to do it that way, just to go with original music, because you know blah blah. If if you use this, then people respond to it differently. Let's go fresh. And I thought, okay, let's do that. Now, it all worked, except for that, those bits. Okay, the bits where Handel's Largo was. He composed something, and we tried it, didn't work. Okay, it just didn't work. He composed something different. It didn't work. So then we tried a whole lot of things. Like, like um, I didn't want to go to Handel's Largo because, you know, you've got to leave that behind. So we tried Mahler, and we tried this, no, none of it worked. So he... he Understanding which things we were trying, he composed again. Still didn't work. We put in a different version of Handel's Largo. It didn't work. This was the only version that worked. And then we discovered it had been recorded in St. Peter's Cathedral, Adelaide. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Hi there. Um... Port Adelaide's obviously always, um, as an outsider, I've only been here about five years, but judging by, you know, you speak to people, it's had a bit of a curious reputation over the years, and even by some locals that I speak to from around Adelaide, still considered like a, a not-safe, no-go zone. Um, do you think this film helped, that reputation? <laughs> nah, Port Adelaide 23 years ago was a fair bit rougher than it is now. Um, yeah, it's, it's gentrifying. So, you know, and we're sorry for that. It's, it's very sedate. But, but I, must, I must say, look, uh, Michael, uh, when uh, he said come along and meet him to uh, talk about Bad Boy Bubby, then on the front door of his uh, video shop is Bad Boy. And then you coming along to look at this film that we made 23 years ago? I'm amazed. And I thank you for it, because it's just astonishing. It really is astonishing. I don't know about the French. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Uh, thanks, Rolf. Thanks, James, uh, for bringing us your film, making the film, and uh, doing this Q&A. Um, but, yeah, uh, thanks to the Adelaide Film Festival, but thanks for everyone for coming and supporting it. Thank you.